There we go. Ta-da, technology. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to Allison and Peggy Engel. It is so great to see you. Yes, many members of your fan club are, are hopping <laughs> on the call. I'm sure you'll recognize them. Some of them you probably met in um, Okaboji last, last year, I would imagine. Um, Allison and Peggy Engel are playwrights, among many other gifts and talents they have and life experiences, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, I'll be some distracted as I let people in and out, in and out of the, uh, well, not out, um, in the call. But while, uh, while we're getting started, let me tell you a little bit about Peggy Engel first. She is the director of the Alicia Patterson Journalism Foundation, and that foundation gives grants to journalists in the name of Alicia Patterson, the founder of Newsday. And she was a reporter for the Washington Post, Des Moines Register, and the Lorraine, Ohio Journal, and was a Nemo, Neiman Fellow at Nemo. <laughs> you were a Nemo Fellow. <laughs> right, Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo, a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, studying worker, worker health and law. She's currently the chair of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Awards Board, and is a longtime member of investigative reporters and editors and the Op-Ed Mentoring Project. That's just some of what she's been up to. Allison Engel, her twin sister, has been a reporter for the Des Moines Tribune, San Jose Mercury and Pacific News Service, a columnist and a Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford. She's worked for the University of Southern California since 2006 in various positions, including Director of Communications, Senior Editor of Alumni Magazine, and much, much more. I'm interested in talking to the two of you today about all of this, but particularly how you became playwrights in, and you know what you've learned since what sounded like a good idea, I don't know how many years ago, uh, it's turned into quite a production, literally and figuratively, to, to bring your words to life in, in, um, in, this, in this genre. So let's start with you, Allison. Welcome. Thank you. So good to have you. Thank you. You know, we've always been interested in theater. Um, I, when we were growing up, all our friends went to dancing school, this very expensive, exclusive dancing school. And our parents were not in favor of that. And instead, they sent us to little theater school. And so our little community theater and um, our dad actually had a master's in screenwriting from Columbia. I mean, in playwriting, not screenwriting, in playwriting. And so um, our parents were always interested in theater and took us to Music Carnival uh, in the Cleveland area. And so it's always we've always gone to theater a lot. And when Peggy and I turned 60, we just decided, you know, our kids were grown. Um, we had more time and we were going to make our, our 60s our most productive creative decade. That was what we decided when we turned 60. And so Peggy will tell you how we wrote our first play and why we did it when we did it. So okay. I was I was um, asked to be on a panel at the University of Colorado, which does this huge um, sort of foreign affairs conference every year and has, Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the founders. So it's been done for many, many years. And I was going to be on a panel with Molly Ivins, the 
red-haired, fiery, and smart and funny journalist from Texas. And that was in April. But I picked up the paper on January 31st of that year and saw that Molly Ivins had died. Um, and we know had known that she was suffering from cancer, but I was totally taken aback by this and called Allison, put down the paper, called Allison and said, we have to write a one woman show about Molly Ivins. Um, and it just occurred to me so strongly that day that her voice and her words should not be lost. And so Allison said yes, and we started working on it. And I had gotten to know Molly's co-author in the last two books she did. And from him, we got the name of their agent. And we flew to New York and we asked this agent if we could do this play about Molly. And he said, all right. I don't think he was too impressed by us, um, yeah. but he said- In fact, he said, you two have no theatrical credibility. He said that right to us. He said, he said you do have journalistic credibility, but you have no theatrical credibility. So, so that was that was what the meeting was like. <laughs> so he said, I'll give you nine months to get a production up. And so we said, fine. And we then quickly learned that saying you're giving somebody nine months to get a play written and produced is like saying you're giving them nine minutes. It just never happens that fast. But we had all sorts of wonderful accidents, many that had an Iowa connection that made this possible. We did do it. Allison, go. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sally Peterson and Jim Autry have been longtime friends and they were out in California, I think, um, for some reason. And we were having lunch and I told them that we were working on this. And J Jim said, well, who would you want to play Molly Ivins? And we said, well, you know, Kathleen Turner would be the best. And he said, well, you know, I sit on a board with her. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And that was People for the American Way. And he said, I'm going to, by then we had done a very rough first draft. He said, I'm going to give her this script. And I said, well, no, you can't because we don't have the final, you know, sign off and everything. But of course, Jim didn't listen to me, gave it to Kathleen. Turned out that Kathleen had met Molly Ivins and Kathleen said, I want that script. And so wow. that really helped because then we could go back to Molly's agent and say, Kathleen Turner's on board. And that helped us. But also a week before that lunch, um, at that time, I was working as the managing editor of the museum and the newspaper historian who worked for me, just in casual conversation, asked what I was working on. And I said, oh, I'm working on this play. And he said, you know, my dad's really interested in the theater. I didn't know his father. I gave him, he said, why don't you give me a copy of that script? So I gave him a copy of the script and it turned out his father was the treasurer of Arena Stage. Yeah. He's a, a big time lawyer in Washington, but that's what he did as his philanthropic give back to the community. So he showed the script to Molly Smith, who was the artistic director. She read it, called me the next morning and said, I want to do this play. And this was before we had Kathleen Turner involved, a week before. So uh, we had these kind of happy accidents that truly never happened. Uh, for a variety of reasons, because of Arena's schedule and Kathleen's schedule, we ended up doing the first production at Philadelphia Theater Company. 
And we were such rookies to this, we didn't realize that as the playwrights, we get to choose the director. And so we didn't really, I have one director friend in New York, but he does musicals and operas. So uh, the Philadelphia Theater Company gave us a list of 14 possible directors that we might want to consider. So I knew we knew none of them, none of the names. But I called up my friend who I did know, whose whose mother worked on my husband's political campaign in Montgomery County. That's how I got to know him. And I went to all of his openings of his great musicals and the like. So I called him and on the phone, I'm I'm calling out these names and he'd say, nope, nope. Oh no, that one's not right. That one. And I got to David S. Bjornson. He said, don't read me anymore. This is the person you want as your director. He's fantastic. You'll love him. And uh, he was a hundred percent right on that. David's a Midwesterner from Minnesota and is in my mind, pretty much a dramatic genius. He did so much to make this, a true uh, partnership and he's helped us with our second play and was the director of that as well. And I, I think you would agree, Allison, yeah. they would have been nowhere near as oh, no. professional, competent, successful if David hadn't been part of this. Yeah. Wow. You know, we were there opening night. It was, it was absolutely thrilling to be in that theater in Philadelphia and see you two and, just soaking up that night. What have you learned since about, I mean, what would you tell Allison, Peggy, Allison and Peggy 10 years ago that you've learned the hard way? Um, I, I think I would tell them that there is no, um, you know, there's no magic platform for getting your work out there and that you as playwrights, even if you have an agent and we have a really big name theatrical agent, you still have to contact all the theaters, the artistic directors, and then they have play selection committees, You like individually. And that just never occurred to me that, you, that the playwright really has to get that involved in marketing your productions. Also, what I've learned is it is somewhat of an accidental a pipeline to find out that artistic directors find out about plays. Uh, they read the back of the Dramatist Guild magazine to see what cities and what theaters are doing other plays. And th the play birthing process just seems to me to be so long and that playwrights do so much of their work for free. Now, that's true of a lot of art in America. Um, talk to any actor, and they've been asked to do so many projects with no no payment. The, the bright side of it, and we, Allison and I, have done seven books together, is that the financial rewards as playwrights is much better than as a, an author. Really? Um, yeah, it's... Yeah. It, years ago, playwrights got 10% of the take uh, at a theater. Now it's down to 6%. And I don't really even know the whole backstory of how that chiseling took place. But even at 6%, um, you, we've done much better with our plays than we ever did with any of our books. Yeah. And the other thing is that you learn is that, and this is thanks to the Dramatist Guild, which is a very active and very... Uh, strong union is that the your word is 
law that no word, in fact, their, their slogan is, you know, don't change a word. Um, during a production, there'll be somebody with a script and they'll go to the actors afterwards, uh, you know, and give them notes and say, you know, you said uh, those, and it should have been these. I mean, they can't change anything without permission from the playwright. And that's why um, you'll see like some of these old plays that are three acts with, you know, two intermissions and go on forever. People wonder, well, why don't they cut it down and modernize it or get rid of that song that's racist or something? It's because you have to get permission from the playwright or the playwright's estate. And that's so different from like a screenwriter when actors go, oh, I improvised, you know, 10 minutes here. Um, actors cannot get up on the stage and improvise. They have to follow your words, which is great. But one funny thing, I saw the play in Marco Island and the woman on the second play we did on Irma Bombeck and the woman who did it, I think the she was in her early 80s, but it worked. She had perfect diction. It was wonderful. But all of a sudden, about halfway through the play, and it's a short play, no intermission, they said, well, now it's intermission. And they put in an intermission. And then when they came back, they reminded everybody in a few sentences what had happened before that. Well, the reason it was is that the whole, you know, it was like a nursing home audience. Everybody was really old and they all needed to have a restroom break. So, you know, obviously I, if if I was a, a really mean playwright, I could have said something about it, but I thought it was endearing and it, even though a little odd and never said a word. So, it, it seems to me, and, and I know nothing about this industry, so, so, so take this as a stupid question, but it seems to me that you look at the Des Moines Community Theater Playhouse and, you know, typically there's some kind of, uh, some kind of play that has been performed ad nauseum every two years because it's popular. You know, we got to do the sound of music or we've got to do, how do you get an unknown play in production. How does that happen? Well, it is very difficult. And I, I can tell you this because I, you know, in past years, I was the president of the Des Moines Playhouse and head of play selection. And basically the artistic director brings a bunch of plays for you to read. And so there are plays that are already published, which means that they've already had productions and so forth. And you typically read those and go from there. So for somebody to to get an unknown play, you know that's why the the average time it takes to get a play a finished play to a production is usually seven years, because they do workshops of it, they do uh, staged readings, and try to get artistic directors and some buzz. And it's it's a very unwieldy and inefficient system, I think. And Peggy can talk about going to the American Association of Community Theaters conference, which we didn't realize that playwrights didn't do, but we just took out a booth there. It was like, I don't know, $200. And Peggy sat there for three days. This is for our second play to tell people about the Irma Babek play. Peggy, maybe you can talk yeah. about that. Well, it really, you know, we're the, also the daughters of an advertising man. So we tend to migrate in that in that direction. And the conference was being held in Gettysburg, which was only 90 minutes away from where I live in Bethesda, Maryland. 
And no other plays really did this, ever set up a booth and told artistic directors, but it seemed to me kind of wacky not to because there were about 1,200 artistic directors there. And we got little Red Hots and got a label that said uh, Red Hot Patriot, which is the Molly Ivins play. And then we said where they could get it online through Concord Theatricals. And it was really fun. And I met- Refrigerator magnets for Irma. Yeah, refrigerator magnets for Irma. We had, um, I, I met so many wonderfully interesting artistic directors. And I also spoke on a panel there. So uh, that opened up a whole different world that I think because we're newspaper reporters at heart, that we were able to understand um, how to attack this whole new field. But the big bonus has been getting to know people in the drama lane who have been doing active professional work for as long as we've been writers. And it is such a collaborative enterprise. And I would encourage any writer or any journalist to, to get into the playwriting lane because uh, our benefit was we're able to write fast and, and research. And theaters are now starting to be more interested in doing uh, nonfiction um, works, translating them to the stage, and also taking um, historic personages who may not have had much attention and turning those people into plays. So uh, there, I think there is some latitude and there is though a respect you have to have for a totally different form of expression. Allison and I ordered 51 one-person plays from Samuel French before we started to write the Molly Ivins play. And we read them all because <clears throat> it is a different construct. And I th and you have to have great respect for the people who can write in that genre. And also when Peggy talks about collaboration, it was really magical to see your words. And then you have the sound engineer and the lighting person and the costumer and the set designer all you know, putting in their two cents and like the the sound engineer would put in a little bit of music in one point and it just changed the whole, and then the lighting would change and it just made it so much more dramatic. And as playwrights, we didn't think about that. You know, we were just thinking about the words. And so this te creative team really does make your play better. And, um, and let's so not forget the actors. Yes. Um, well, yeah, of course. Sure. I mean, I mean... It, it, it's so interesting to see we've had about 72 productions of the Irma Bombeck play and uh, I think 69 productions of the Molly Ivins play. And so we've seen many different um, actors do these roles and they get laughs in different places. Uh, ones become more poignant. Um, it, it was really interesting to see the different approach and how there isn't one approach that, but they're, they're so talented and so successful at how they can communicate orally. It really is something that we just stood back with our mouths open and just were so grateful to, that they were bringing their talents to our words. So it's no surprise or no accident that you picked two strong female writers. How did that how did that process come about? Did you just decide one day that we need more representation of of women journalists in theater? Go ahead. Well, 
one thing, there aren't that many one women shows. You know, the 51 that we ordered, there were very few that were for women, that were about women. And I knew from the Playhouse and, you know, just generally that every theater company has five or six really talented actresses over the age of 50 who, you know, they're past the ingenue stage, they're, you know, and they're, the roles they're offered are like the crazy aunt and the nurse. And um, so we knew that there were, and, and in fact, a lot of those women have been instrumental in getting their theaters to do these plays because they want to have a meaty starring role. And so not only did we want to do something about women, we wanted to do something about women who are over 50. Because you look at theater audiences and it's, you know, overwhelmingly women over 50. Right. But um, there, were very, there were very few plays about women, one woman shows. Well, this is going to sound like a huge name drop, but I was invited to this Women in Power conference, but it sounds very <laughs> impressive. But it was out in, in upstate New York and they um, attract about 400 women there of, of all ages and descriptions. And two of the speakers were Jane Fonda and Sally Field. And they stood in front of this crowd of not writers, just women, and and really implored us to write uh, screenplays or plays for them. And, and I think it was Jane who said, I've been getting grandma roles since I was 35. And there's, you know, even, even with our long track record in the entertainment business, we just do not get decent material. And, and so I think that was what was in the back of my mind the day that Molly Ivins died, that I thought this needs to be a play. And I don't think I would have had that idea had I not heard these two, you know, very famous actresses pleading for some decent roles. So did it make you think of a play that you could put Jane Fonda or Sally Field in in the starring role? Well, I, I think there's so many other actors who need the boost um, that that wouldn't be my first focus. But, you know, uh, we, we've had this, uh, the actress who did the Irma Bombeck play in Fort Myers was so grateful to have this center stage starring role that she wrote an amazing essay about how it was the most rewarding of her very long career. And it got such attention that Samuel French put it on its website where it still remains. Wow. I know that there are people on the call that are gonna have questions. So those of you who do, please uh, use the hand raising function on your Zoom and remember that you are on mute until I call on you. Um, but I've got to tell you too that um, I, I do a survey of the participants of the Okoboji Writers Retreat immediately after. And the feedback you two had, you changed so many lives from those workshops you held. One woman uh, brought her uh, nonfiction, or no, her fiction manuscript. And you two went over it and said, you know, this could be a play. And the next thing I know, I see a Facebook picture in Omaha of that play in production. Have you been following that? Yeah, I, I have, and it's thrilling. You know, really I, and I think that a, a lot, you know, plays are, you know, can take place in any time period. You can go back and forth with projections now. 
you know, you can, you can set it on the moon, you can set it, you know, in 17th century England, and even a very small theater can, can do that with projections. So it, you know, I think that plays offer a lot of freedom that, um, you know, journalism doesn't, you know, uh, by nature, because you're, you're not making things up. Um, but and, all of the stories that journalists have done, so many could be turned into, into great plays. I at that Gettysburg conference, uh, I was imploring the uh, artistic directors in the audience to find things that are in their own home cities or towns and bring that to the stage because it could be a perennial uh, for their audience and it would be a great way to bring people into the theater. And the artistic director in South Bend, Indiana said, well, we have this situation where we had housing built to bring in workers at our industrial plant. And so it it had sort of our lily white community um, brought in workers of, of color from all over the, the country. And here is the sort of success um, and also uh, some difficulties that we had in becoming a new community after this happened. And they had had one of those books that you see often in hardware stores um, that is a community snapshot where there are a lot of photos and a lot of captions um, just on small communities. And they had had one done and it showed what that their Kresge's after um, the public accommodations laws were passed would serve all races, but they, if you were African-American, they would take black paint and put it on the bottom of the glass so that it would, the, the glasses would be segregated. So he was saying, you know, we have this great situation, but we don't um, have a playwright locally because it's small town-ish uh, to do it. So I put them in connection with a, a play, a woman who taught playwriting at Catholic University, sorry, Georgetown University. And long story short, her play is going to be done in South Bend this fall. So, wow. and it's about this very local situation of a housing development and economic development, but it has a lot of elements of drama. Yeah, anyway. I think almost every small town, any town and city has either some great scandal in the past or some, you know, wonderful heartwarming tale you know, I used to live in Kearney, Missouri, which was the hometown of Jesse James. Our kids got out of school on Jesse James' birthday, but there was a play about Jesse James. And they've been running that play for, I don't know how many, you know, decades. So if a playwright could write a play for a specific community, and I think a journalist would be particularly well-equipped to do that, you know, that could bring you residuals, you know, till, till the end of time. Wow. Wow. Oh, my mind is just racing. Oh, these are such great ideas. How do you two work together? Do you, do you have do you have identical personality styles or do you complement each other? Do what do you have do you well, have dramatic tensions? What how does that work? Well, we don't fight that much, but um you know, in Hollywood, there are a lot of writing teams and there's all these discussions about how you do it. And a lot of them do it with one person at the laptop and the other person standing over their shoulder. That would never work with Peggy and me. We usually say, you know, like we'll take a scene or something and we'll, we'll each write it our own way and then we'll send it to each other. 
and see who did the better job or take elements of each one. But it works better that way if we if we do a draft independently, maybe not of the whole thing, but of of part of it. And um, that that seems to work pretty well because it also you don't end up spending all sorts of time discussing things. You know, you you just like a journalist, you write it, and then you know, as uh, what the famous author and what. Like in her last name calls it the shitty first draft. You know, it's better just to do it and get it out there and send it to the other person. And you know, Peggy and I have no problems telling each other it was a shitty first draft. Uh, you're talking about Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott, yeah. Bird by bird. Yeah. Bird by bird. Yes, yes. Um, so let's see. I've got a, a bunch of your old friends are on this call, um, and also Mary Swander is here, and she's a playwright. She's many other things too, but she's a playwright. I'm going to call on you, Mary, to see if you have any questions or comments. Mary just put on a play um, uh, not long ago about, well, I'll let her explain it, but Mary, are you with us? I'm here. Okay. I'm here. There. Hello. There we go. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Good to see you. That's, I, I'm totally interested in, in what you're saying. Um, let's say somebody does a play with local interest um you know about local history or whatever then how would you suggest they go about getting that produced i would go to your local historical society first of all and ask if they would be the sponsor and you know theaters always love it if you you come with a sponsor um they may have you know there's so many places that actually have venues that could be used for plays churches have auditoriums schools have auditoriums you know and and if you can rent it for a nominal uh fee um but i would get the historical society involved or if there's a uh you know a local nonprofit that is involved with um you know historic preservation or you know old cemeteries or whatever so you have some uh, entity behind you, and then those people can be, you know, help you be the volunteers that you're going to need. Um, and you know, every every town has, you know, even in, in this the schools, there'll be the drama teacher who really could be a great director. Um, you know, it, it's not like you have to go and bring in somebody from Broadway. Um, there, there is, you know, when I was at the Des Moines Playhouse, it just continually amazed me the quality of talent that would come to auditions. And I remember when we did The Music Man, this woman showed up, never seen her before, and was just an unbelievable Marian librarian. And, um, you know, the UPS man and the school janitor and an eight-year-old, you know, all have to work together. And, you know, that's one of the great things about theater is that um, it really is, you know, ev every person depends on every other person. And so anyway, I'm saying that these people who are interested in history or whatever topic you wrote about, I would link to them to, to you know, give you a, some immediate, um, you know, legitimacy. Good yeah, idea. and then um, follow-up question. Okay, let's say the show is up and running um, on that local history issue, but you want to make it bigger. 
take it to a wider audience. For example, I have a friend who wrote a show about Grant Woods. It's really terrific. And it's been touring in Iowa for 25 years. But, you know, Grant Woods, like a huge, had a huge exhibit in New York a few years ago. I don't see why it couldn't, you know, has to be stuck here. Why can't it go coast to coast? Right. Well, when it had the show in New York, if you could have gotten the curator and the museum director to contact uh, off-Broadway theaters, artistic directors to say, when our show is up with this Grant Wood, we would love to partner with you and have a play about Grant Wood. Uh, and maybe, I can't remember what museum that was at, but several of the museums have theater space that it could have been right. done in conjunction with it. And you know That's the great. Smithsonian, the Smithsonian has a huge program for um, classes and lectures, and some of them are Zoom. And Peggy and I, when we did our Food Finds book, we spoke at one of the Smithsonian things in Washington. But now it's all, you know, a lot of it is Zoom, and they have people around the world. I would, I would think that that might be somebody that I would go to, um, or you know, some. A, a lot of colleges now, you know, after COVID are doing whole programs on Zoom, you know, and, and have money to spend for content. So that might be something like if you um, would research which schools are doing that, um, maybe you could have their drama department do it. And, you know, but you want to make sure that you have the rights and that, the, you know, they're giving you uh remuneration for it. And the art associations too. Um, if if schools across a country have Grant Wood as part of their curriculum, I think that would make sense for them to sponsor it too. Good suggestion. Okay, Anything else, Mary? Oh, I'll let somebody else jump in. Okay, Bryce, your hand is raised. Welcome aboard. Well, I would just say this, that having served on the Iowa Arts Council and some other uh, places, uh, I, I'll give an example. I would call up Chuck Offenberger and I'd say, I want the Historical Society. I want somebody to have an entree into the economic development. I want to talk to some genealogists. I want to talk to those people that give grants. And depending on the size of the town, I would put that uh, together as a group. You, you Also, the genealogists by the way, who are great historian, great storytellers because they often write themselves about the stories within families and all. And there's some great stories in many communities. In fact, I always felt that cultural development was one of the keys to maintaining smaller communities who can aggregate their skills if they're really small, but can do it on a county or regional basis. It starts with a good story. It starts with people with skills at putting people together and then finding the Peggy's and the Allison's that uh, would be intrigued by producing that story. But that's the way I would start. And I use Chuck Offenberger as the kind of key person you need to find. Right. Thank and you. Even, oh. yeah, and even a county, great, oh. great ideas. And, and if you could even do it at the county fair, that would be, you know, they've got tents, they've got people already coming. That's half your battle. And if you have a local play that that uh, is produced first at your county fair, it can go from there. You know, a friend of mine uh, 
lives in Bar Harbor, Maine, and she had what I thought was an excellent idea for a play. There's a small cemetery in the center of town, and she wanted to do research. There was only like 13 graves, and she wanted to do research on them and do a play about the, the people who are buried there. And I think every town that has a cemetery, not that you'd have to do everybody, but there are there are amazing stories. And you're right, genealogists, um, a, a lot of, you know, some of that historical research may already have been done. Um, and when I did the little play about um, meet Steve King's ancestors, um, there's a woman who runs a, a little organization called Resistance Genealogy, and they do research on politicians who are anti-immigrant, and they do research on their own family background, showing that they, you know, most of them, their grandparents were all immigrants. And she hooked me up with a guy that in like two days gave me all the information about Steve King's ancestors that would have taken me months to track down. So you're right, genealogists are wizards. You know, I'm thinking, as you, you two know, and pretty much everybody on this call, my father was a war correspondent who covered World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And shortly after he died, I was 23, I had a book of his columns compiled from the war years. But I was stating, I'm thinking, God, would, that would be a neat play. One man's view of three very different wars from a human interest perspective. I don't have the I don't have the tickets to write it, but boy, I I, I wonder if that wouldn't work. That would I be really, a tremendous you should get somebody to write that, Julie. I really I mean, one man's view of war. Um it, because yes, he I mean his his verbiage was fantastic. His I remember Gordon going to Vietnam because I was, uh, you know, a cub reporter. And in fact, I'm going to take a little digression here because I owe Gordon Gamak really for my career. I had been at the paper like three weeks and Gordon were either six or seven columns a week. I think he wrote six for the Tribune and then he had a Sunday column in the register. So right. you can imagine. And I remember asking him how he wrote so much and he was, he looked at, you know, he, he was such a modest guy. He goes, well, he goes, I turn out a lot of crap, which was not true. <laughs> that was his answer to me. But anyway, Gordon was in Boone on an assignment. It's staying in a motel in Boone. And in the morning, he noticed that instead of the Smucker's little plastic, you know, jam things, there was cut glass, uh, you know, containers with jelly on everybody's table. So, you know, Gordon is so observant. He asked the manager why the cut glass jelly dishes. And the guy knows who Gordon Gamak is, of course, the whole state did. And he said, oh, you you, you got it. You, you must have known Mamie's here. It was Mamie Eisenhower, who every summer would visit her uncle Joel in Boone. And so Gordon comes back to the newsroom and instead of you know trying to get an interview with Mamie himself, he comes to me, the greenest person on the staff, and tells me this and says, "See if you can get an interview." Oh. And I mean, it was just it was the sweetest, most generous thing. And I, you know, amazingly, I wrote a note to Mamie with all the 
all the connections we had, which were, you know, my dad went to Columbia when um, Ike was there and his name was, you know, he signed his diploma and my mom used one of Mamie's recipes and Peggy and I were born at West Point Military Hospital. I mean, I was, I was reaching and the Secret Service guys like rolled their eyes and said, you know, she hasn't given an interview for five years except to Barbara Walters. She doesn't do interviews, blah, blah, blah. So Tom DeFeo, the photographer, and I just, you know, cooled our heels in the motel. And they come back an hour later and say, she wants, she's going to do the interview because she thinks she knows you. <laughs> so I, I go in and she said, are you, you know, Lieutenant Colonel's daughter, Engel's daughter? And I said, no, um, you know, our dad was a first lieutenant, but he wasn't, you know, we were born at West Point, but that was just geography anyway. So, but there I was. And so she gave me this amazing interview and William Shirley put it in the congressional record. And, you know, my editors just thought I was so great, but it was all because of Gordon Gamak and how observant he was and how generous he was. I just, I adored him. Oh, that's sweet. I do have to say one thing I remember from that article, that interview, Allison, that Mamie said she cut her famous Mamie bangs with cuticle scissors she borrowed from the Secret Service. Yes, she cut it herself. And it was also during Watergate. And she said right at the beginning, now I'm not going to talk about Watergate or Nixon. And I said, okay, that's fine. So then halfway through it, she starts this ringing defense of Nixon saying, he's as honest as the day is long. So, you know, I remember calling Peggy afterwards and said, you know, she knows I'm a reporter. Um, you know, I'm taking notes. And Peggy said, use it. She said it. So I did, you know, I put that in there. And um, of course, that hasn't held up over the years, but that's how she felt at the time. I love it. Oh, my gosh. What, what, we've got to talk about the Food Network project you did. Mm -hmm. you, you, it started with a book, and it was a successful book. How did you get that onto the Food ne Network? And for how many seasons? You had seven, eight? Seven seasons on Food Network. Actually, we wrote this book because... Peggy and I were thinking of a project to do together. And one Christmas, I made like a gift basket of things. I was living in Illinois then, you know, so we had caramels from Our Lady, the Mississippi Abbey, and, you know, just local foods. And then we thought, well, this would be a good book. We were so naive. You know, I mean, it was, it's like it was a huge research project because you can see there are books just on cheese and books, but not then. American food wasn't really such a big thing. And we made two huge food baskets and sent them to two publishers. To this day, we hadn't, we haven't heard from one of them, but to the other one immediately said they wanted to do it. So then we got agents and it ended up being with HarperCollins. So that was before Food Network. We actually had done two editions of the book, and then we got this call from this startup network that was just going to be about food. And I remember we were so such idiots. We thought, oh, that'll never fly, a TV network just on food. And um, so ours was the first book that they got in Paul Prudhomme. And um we were producers, but at that time I was, you know, a speechwriter and aide in the governor's office and Peggy had a full-time job. And, you know, this was a forerunner of how things are going now. They just had gig uh, 
producers and video videographers that they sent all over the country. So there might be using our book. So there might be four or five different crews filming at the same time, all of them calling us with questions all day. And so we did that for a year, but then we said, you know, we can't be, we, we actually made the wrong choice. We should have said yes, because the guy that took it over after one year retired to the Bahamas, you know, but, um, but it was really interesting to, um, so the show ran for seven years on Food Network, and then they, um, when it was time to renegotiate, they sold it to Travel Network, and it ran for three years there. We did get to pick the host, but towards the end, it had really devolved into, um, you know, let's let's go to uh, this state because, you know, my girlfriend lives there. <laughs> you know, they would just pick up some crummy food. So um, anyway, the the first several years I thought was uh, were legitimate. How does the business part of that work? What, what, if you don't mind me asking, how, <laughs> you get something, I mean, it seems like, oh, that's a lucrative thing. It just keeps giving residuals. It wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. No. It should have been lucrative. That's what I'm saying. The guy that took over from us retired to the Bahamas. Uh, it's it lucrative for him then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we remember asking, um, you know, we got a certain amount up front and it wasn't much. It was like, I think we shared $8,000. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't a huge amount. And we asked if we could renegotiate at the end of the year, if the season, if they decided to continue. And, you know, they were just really, and we had an agent then and everything. And they just said, no, they said, you know, if you don't, if you don't agree to do it, we'll just use your book anyway. And that's, that was one thing that we found over and over again with the Food Finds books is that we were ripped off so many times. Finally, you know, I wrote for Savour for a while and finally they called me and they said, well, you might have noticed we've been, you know, using your book for, you know, the." and I said, yeah, I did notice. So that I, I did a column for Savour for several years, but, um, you know, Midwest Living, The Washington Post. I mean, everybody ripped off our book and um, there really was no recourse, you know, well, because they was, could say. But there, the, actually the most money <clears throat> we made on that book was when uh, another author totally plagiarized it. Yes, and true. we found out that that's the sort of the secret of, of publishing is that every publisher has Play, has authors who have plagiarized publisher uh, authors from other houses. And so they don't sue each other over it because everyone's got so many skeletons in the closet. But we were determined because we both had two kids at that time. And we did this book like on nights and weekends. And it just took so much time that we were really mad that somebody else had just lifted all of our stuff. So yeah. we pushed it. It was really word for word plagiarism, page after page. You know, and, and so, it was published by a major publisher. So wow. th didn't they, they pulled the book and I think we got $14,000, which was, you know, more than we had ever gotten in royalties, but wow. uh, it was a principle of the thing. But well, that, it was, it was interesting to find out that there's so much plagiarism and this was before the internet. Um, there was so much plagiarism that that, you know, they would get together, these lawyers would get together and kind of horse trade. Okay, I'll give you this on this one. And this other. I, was it Little Brown that was the other publisher? I can't remember now. Or Prentice Hall. I mean, it was a major New York publisher, but um, 
you know, and what really made us mad is when they contacted the author and asked for an explanation, she said, and she was a food editor at a major newspaper, and she said that, oh, no, she didn't plagiarize, that she, um, that she used the same brochures from food companies that we did. So like implying that we uh, lifted stuff word for word from, uh, you know, from food manufacturers, uh, you know, promotional literature, which we had not, but, you know, this was back in the days when we had uh, our notes, we had carbon paper, we had, you know, we had her dead to rights, but that that's when we really got mad and put our foot down and said, no, we are not, um, you know, rolling over on this. Good. That reminds me of a topic that we probably don't have enough time to give it. Uh, oh, well, Bridget, you have a question, but I'm going to circle back after Bridget and ask you about uh, artificial intelligence and chat GPT. Uh, but Bridget, you have your hand raised. Love to have your conversation with us. Thank you. What a beautiful shot in the arm today. It's uh, really great. Um, uh, I wanted to make a, a comment and then ask you a question. I'll be really quick. I am a theater person from Iowa. Okaboji is my hometown. The first play I saw was at Okaboji Summer Theater. Just went there, saw Marilyn May. That's how I found you all. Wow. Yay. Uh, yeah, super, super beautiful. Um, I... Uh, I, I am an actor and um, a playwright. Um, I, I only call myself a playwright. I've written one, a one-woman show about Sarah Bernhardt. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to mention that um, there is a festival called the United Solo Festival in New York City. Um, I did my show there. I We were able to win an award, a multimedia award, but that is also a place where one person shows can get picked up. It's it's done kind of like a fringe festival kind of thing, um, de dedicated to solo shows. Sometimes, usually original, but uh, sometimes not. But you're talking about plagiarism, and I wanted to ask about the agent situation for you. Um, do you do you have a shared agent that you use? Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we do. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Dramatist Guild is fierce on this and has a whole legal department that not only will help you with contracts, but if anyone plagiarized your work, they would go after them in the minute if you were a member of the Dramatist Guild. And by writing one play, you can be a member of the Dramatist Guild. So, um, yeah, and our agent, because he only does theatrical things, would go after it as well you as you have much more protection as a playwright i think than certainly as a journalist where you get plagiarized and and uh you know they take your ideas and the people you interviewed and rewrite it all the time but also you don't need an agent if you're a playwright only one tenth of playwrights have agents because there are so few theatrical agents out there so don't let that be a barrier to um to getting your work out there. It's easier to get your work out there as an unagented playwright than it is as an unagented uh, author. Interesting. So uh, Allison and I were having a conversation before we launched the Zoom meeting about how hard it is to uh, get into local theater companies, et cetera, and that there isn't some sort of 
network that that assists playwrights. Are you, can you talk a little bit about that, Allison, and then those of you on the call who are playwrights, Bridget, Mary, I'm not sure who else. I think uh, Karen. Yeah, I think Bridget just illustrated something. We've never heard of the United Solo Festival. Oh, I have actually. Oh, okay, Robin well. Gerber had her play there last oh. year. Okay, well, it's there. There are there isn't a, a clearly defined path. And as I said, we we took out a booth at the uh, American Association of Community Theaters thing. I we have contacted a lot of artistic theater artistic directors individually. Um, you can't depend on, like we thought when our play, our Irma play was in Cincinnati at Cincinnati Playhouse, which is a Lort theater, League of Resident Theater, which are the larger theaters. There are about four, 45 of those around the country. It was held over three times and they wanted to hold it over again, but they had another show in. So we thought, oh, surely other artistic directors at the other Lort theaters are going to hear about this great success. But no, it's like, I, I don't know, you know, as as Peggy said, they look in the back of the Dramatist Guild um, magazine to see who has what productions where, but there doesn't seem to be a really good, uh, uh, you know, chain of, of gossip that, that, you know, tells people, though, this was a huge hit for us, you should do it. Yeah, that's one of the um, problems is that they're very secretive about the money and the, the return so that the artistic directors aren't talking to each other about uh, financial success. So uh, I would think because the country is so large and a, a play that gets done in Massachusetts isn't going to hurt a play that's being done in Utah, that because theater, like many parts of the arts, is really suffering today, that they would start sharing this economic data. Um, so that they could help each other, but it doesn't—it doesn't seem to be that way. So I couldn't help but su suggest to Allison that there's some business opportunity for somebody who 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 could make some kind of collaborative uh, network, and and to the benefit of of all those of you who are who are doing this and need some kind of advocacy. Bridget, do you know of anybody doing that, or is there? something there there well i not exactly i think uh no i don't i don't know of a business uh, um something like that in advocacy group i i've heard about that um america the community theater association i appreciate hearing that um i was just going to say that you know the resources are so um small for the arts now um yeah that 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 people are kind of running ragged to keep their organizations going so there is a little bit of uh secrecy around that um in albuquerque we have a playwriting circle and um where we have our plays read and there's a sharing of information amongst those people um it's kind of a scarcity mindset right yeah Variety, for example, does Broadway grosses, and sometimes they'll dip down and do off-Broadway grosses, and that's about the only measure you can find or see to understand how those plays at the very upper level are running, but um, 
they there's a, a list done every year of the most produced plays. Uh, and I just don't know about any that have done the most successful financially rewarding plays. So Chuck Offenberger, just by the way, Chuck, feel free to jump on <clears throat> if you want to say something or ask something. But um, he has a little something in the chat here that you'll you'll get a kick out of. Um, it seems to me there are people on this call who know who know theater in their local areas. What would it take for them to pick up the phone and call, you know, somebody at at the Temple Theater in Des Moines or the Des Moines Playhouse or the, well, actually I'm gonna send this to um, a new connection I just made with the um, Stevens uh, uh, Theater Company here in, in the Okoboji area. But let's let's see if there are folks here we can harness to to get this the, these works out there. What, what do they do? What, who should they contact? Who makes these decisions? Well, and one of the things that we just did, we our Irma play was at Cleveland Playhouse and it just ended uh, yesterday and it was a really successful run. And we remember that there is a documentary that was done on Irma Bombeck by the PBS station in Dayton, Ohio, where she was from. And it was the highest ranked PBS show for decades. And they ran it on Mother's Day weekend. They ran it throughout the year. And so we wrote, um, I just wrote to both the, CEOs of both the Cleveland PBS station and the Dayton PBS station saying, you should um, film this play and run it as a special. Uh, that's starting to happen more with Audible and a few other platforms where they're uh, filming plays and then finding other ways to um, put them <clears throat> on streaming services. I haven't gotten an answer yet from the two of them, but I just did that on my own, You know, researched who they were and and told them about this. They're so new in the in the business. In other words, they weren't around 35 and 40 years ago when this first documentary was done that they probably don't know about its success. But uh, those are the kind of ideas that we're jumping for now to get um, sort of more people to understand and see the plays. I was talking to Julie. You know, the National Theater uh, in England has done a spectacular job of filming staged plays with like five cameras so that you feel that you're in the front row and on the balcony, they do overhead shots. And they package these as series that are then shown in movie theaters. And I can see them here in California at UCLA or at Pasadena. And these are you know, the top shows in London right now. And, um, I, you know, I firmly believe, and they must too, is that it doesn't diminish your audience, it increases your audience. And there is, you know, right now you cannot um, film a staged production. Like we couldn't have gone and filmed the production at the Cleveland Playhouse and sold it to some streaming service. Um, there would have to be lots of contracts and so forth, but it's not something that's generally done. I think in the next five years, you're gonna see that change. And you know, I hope that the, that that American theaters follow the path of the you know theaters in London and do that. So Chuck Offenberger, why don't you wrap us up for the hour? This has flown by. Can you unmute and join in the conversation and wrap us up? 
Well, it's too great to see Peggy and, and uh, Allison, two great old friends. And uh, I just said earlier that the reason they're so good is because they're such good reporters and they have incredible ears for quotes, like whoever picked that one up about Mamie Eisenhower's bangs, how they <laughs> cut it. Um, the I have, There was a play, and I think it might have been done by Cynthia Mercati, who's done a lot of those plays about Iowa figures, including the Grant Wood one that Mary Swander mentioned earlier. Is she still writing? Do we know? Uh, I think she also did one that was one of my faves. It was Khrushchev and Garst, two guys who, uh, two actors who stood up and told the story of Garst and Khrushchev meeting in 1959 in Coon Rapids. And God, those guys were so good. They were from the Des Moines Theater um, and they, they looked the part and they acted the part. I mean, they were incredible. It was a wonderful way to tell history. As Bryce was saying earlier, it's a great these kinds of plays are great ways to tell local history. But does anybody know about Cynthia Mercati? I don't. Huh? No. We'll just have to Google. There okay. we go. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, our hour is up. Thank you so much. Yeah, I know one thing. I bet you Chuck Offenberger and I are going to be in Allison's workshop at the Oakland. Yeah. That's country. right. I yeah. wish I could be there. Uh, well, maybe we'll zoom you in while you're having okay. you know, a nice, uh, nice time and wherever. Love All it. right. Thank you both for being Thanks, with us. Thanks, everyone. Me. Yay. Really Yay. fun. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye bye.